of teaching from Matthew 8, 18 through 22, which you can find on page 813 in the House Bibles in front of you. So if you are able, please stand with me as I read aloud. And I'll be starting in verse 18 of Matthew 8. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to invite Aaron on up, and we're, we'll pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a redeeming God that can change hearts and change lives. Um, I thank you this morning for our graduates and the way that you have sustained them through their studies, and I pray that you would be with them and guiding them as they move on to new things in life and that they would continue to seek you and seek to share your love with those around them wherever you send them next. And I pray for Aaron this morning. I thank you for the time he's spent preparing for this sermon. I pray that you would speak to him. I pray that we would have humble hearts that are willing to be open and vulnerable and to hear your truth and to accept it and have faith in you, God. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Hannah. Uh, Before we get started, kind of want to just say, a couple things. Uh, first and foremost, thank you so much for everyone uh, who has been checking in on me, praying for me over the last couple weeks. Uh, if you weren't here a few weeks ago, um, I was scheduled to kind of wrap up our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, which I was so, so excited to do. Uh, and then the night before uh, I was scheduled to preach, I threw out my back really, really bad uh, to the point where I couldn't even stand up straight. Uh, if you're familiar with the story of you know, Jesus healing the, the bent-over woman in Luke 13, that's what my mind jumped to. I was afraid I was going to be stuck like that till Jesus came back, but thankfully not. Um, but you guys cared so well for me, um, texting me, praying for me, offering to come help me with things that we needed since I wasn't able to help Caitlin much that week. Um, but we felt very loved and cared for by y'all, so thank you. Um, that also means, secondly, that it's been an extra little while since I've been up here to preach, and I'm excited about our text this morning, and so I'm just going to warn you now, I might have a little bit of pent-up frustration, some pent-up fire, some pent-up preaching that I need to, to get out, so that's just kind of a heads up, but we'll jump on in. Ticketmaster. In November last year, the world-famous musical icon Taylor Swift was about to open up sales for her uh, current world tour uh, that she's on right now. Uh, If you've ever been to a concert or a show or a sporting event, you've probably gotten on the Ticketmaster website at some point to buy digital tickets. Now, if you haven't heard about this controversy related to the uh, Ticketmaster and Taylor Swift's business arrangement, let me catch you up. Ticketmaster had the exclusive rights to sell Taylor's tour tickets, and knowing that this would be one of the best-selling of all-time concert tours, 
One article I read this week said that uh, brides were moving their wedding dates based on the tour dates of this concert, uh, of this tour. They assured her that uh, they were up to the task, that the website could handle the traffic that would be coming its way. And unfortunately, as it turned out, nothing could have been further from the truth. Within seconds of the tickets opening up for purchase, the website crashed for hours. And then when it had gotten fixed and people could get on the website again, it immediately crashed again due to overwhelming site traffic. And now while this was happening, the tickets were still being bought up by um, robots, I guess, um, scalpers. Uh, And within a day of the tickets being sold out on Ticketmaster, they began popping up on competitor sites for resale. Again, this article that I read about the whole controversy said that some of the prices for the tickets were like five digits. That's like a down payment on a house. That's crazy. Uh, One of my dear, beloved friends, he lives down in Dallas, uh, he was able to go to the Dallas show with his wife. He's a savvy businessman. They were gifted three tickets to the Houston show through her work. Uh, And so my buddy sold the three Houston tickets and got enough out of them to buy two Dallas tickets, pay for all their date night expenses, and then he told me that he still had a decent chunk of change left over. But for average Swifties like you and me, who aren't just getting gifted tickets from our jobs, uh, there's really only two options on the table. Either we have to go all in. The moment you know, those tickets open up, uh, we don't have time to think about, uh, you know, about buying the tickets once we see them, because there's someone right behind us who wants them just as bad as we do. We don't have time to consider all those extra costs, the expensive resale ticket, paying uh, for an Uber or transit down to the arena, uh, dinner downtown, drinks at the arena, and the merch. You've got to get the merch. How are people going to know you were there? Or our other option is just calculate all that up in our minds, throw up our hands, and wait until the next time she goes on tour. Knock on wood that there's not another global pandemic in the near future, and that Ticketmaster gets their many, many, many customer service issues figured out. You only got to wait two, three, four years maybe. Now I see some confused faces. Understandably so. You're wondering why I am starting off this sermon with a two-page rant about the Taylor Swift Ticketmaster debacle. To answer your first question, no, I'm not still taking pain medicine for my back. (laughs) To answer your second question, why bring this up at all? Well, what I want to get in our minds is that those two opposite reactions that Taylor Swift fans had to have and grapple with as they thought about trying to get tickets for the tour, um, those are the same responses that Jesus gets in this passage from two of his would-be followers either going all in on the spur of the moment or else waiting till next time. But he actually rebukes both of those responses. We see two ditches on either side of the road these guys have fallen into, and Jesus is trying to help them get out, get back on the road. So let's dive into our text this morning. What are we seeing here with these two seaside interactions that Jesus has before he sets sail? We'll examine them separately at first and then see how the tension they create together draws us to Jesus' primary purpose. 
So look down at verse 18 to start with. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Last couple weeks, we've looked at some of Jesus' healing miracles. Jesus heals a leper. Jesus heals a centurion's servant. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus heals a bunch of crowds who have now stuck around to follow his uh, mendicant medical miracle worker. And you would think that, you know, the Messiah would be interested in having these large crowds around him, right? Like, what person with a microphone stuck to their head uh, wouldn't want to talk to as many people as they could at one time, right? That's almost never how Jesus responds in these moments. He sees the crowd that's continuing to grow. He's stirred up enough of a scene and decides it's time to head on out. He gives the disciples orders to get ready to go to the other side of the sea, get the boats ready. We know this is what the verse is implying because next week's sermon passage is going to be Jesus and his disciples on a boat. Now this sets up a moment of truth for some of the people in the crowd. Will they stick with Jesus, follow him, or are they going to stay behind, go on with their regular lives? The first man, a scribe, scribe is someone who's an expert in the Hebrew Bible. He steps forward and declares, check out verse 19 with me, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Have you ever made a public, have you ever publicly announced a bold commitment like that in your life? Maybe around the holiday season, you uh, post all over social media. You say, I'm going to do whatever it takes to finally get in shape this year. Maybe before the beginning of your favorite sports season, you profess your undying loyalty to your team. You say, I'm with my guys however the season goes, win or lose. Maybe it's almost election season. You're getting excited about the new update to the party platform. You say, this is so great, I'll vote for whoever is campaigning on, campaigning on this idea. The scribe, he's got a lot of enthusiasm. He steps forward and proclaims that he'll follow Jesus wherever he goes. He even calls Jesus teacher, which is quite a compliment coming from an expert in the Jewish law. Like, this guy's a scholar in his own right. But you see... There's a bit of a problem with his grandiose statement. The same way that there's often problems with our grandiose statements that we make. It's one thing to declare your intentions to finally get in shape this year. But have you actually thought through how a renewed dedication to fitness is going to affect your daily schedule? Or how your new diet might affect your budget? It's one thing to declare your undying loyalty to your team in an over-the-top way. What about when they squander their first-round pick? What about when they have to fire their head coach? What about when there's a huge scandal and the, off, and the star player gets kicked off the team because of off-the-field trouble? You're really going to want that decal on your laptop, that bumper sticker on your car? You want people to know you root for that team? It's one thing to declare your dedication to the political party platform and your intention to support it regardless of who the candidate is. But then election day rolls around, you back yourself into a corner, you actually have to decide whether or not you're going to vote for that person, no matter how immoral or 
incompetent they end up being. These things happen to us when we don't count the cost of something in advance. And so Jesus is quick to see this shallow, short-sighted enthusiasm from the scribe. The shallow and short-sighted enthusiasm. It's an insufficient faith. Jesus responds, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The scribe says that he'll follow Jesus wherever he goes. And Jesus clarifies immediately that one place you will not be following me to is a warm shower, a hot meal, a cozy bed at the end of a long day of kingdom ministry. Jesus wants to make sure that the scribe has actually thought through this grand public profession before he steps into the boat. If we flip forward a few chapters in Matthew, we'll see Jesus' famous parable of the sower. In this parable, uh, Jesus describes a farmer who scatters seed around the farm, and the seed either grows or dies based on the places that it ends up falling. One of those kinds of seed, it lands in the rocky soil. Let's read about this part of the parable. Jesus says, Other seed fell on the rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Jesus circles back around later in that chapter to unpack the meaning of this parable. He says, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So when Jesus' words hit the heart of the scribe, something is quick to sprout up. We see him make that bold profession of faith, that bold pledge of allegiance to Jesus. But ultimately, and unfortunately, that faith won't last. It sprang up too quickly before its roots were able to support it. In the parable of the sower, that seed is scorched when the trials come. Maybe a trial like being a homeless wanderer around the Judean countryside. Think about those Taylor Swift fans who have to jump at the opportunity to buy tickets when they see them. They think, whew, I was just barely able to afford the cost of that $1,000 ticket. But this is like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I had to jump on it. But what happens when we spend all your money on the tickets and then you can't afford the Uber, the subway, food and drinks and merch? You might just have to sell your ticket and not end up going after all. And we can be a lot like the shallow, uncritically eager scribe or swifty when it comes to following Jesus, can't we? We hear the word and immediately we're like, yes! Sign me up. I'm in for the long haul. Without thinking of everything that comes along with biblically faithful discipleship. We just wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount, right? We hear Jesus say this. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And we exclaim, whoa, yeah, golden rule. Preach it, Jesus. I'll follow you wherever you go. We get enthralled 
when Jesus denounces anger. But do we have the sobriety to see that it's going to take real effort on our part to actually apologize and reconcile with the people we've hurt? We spring up quickly when Jesus condemns lust and objectifying our brothers and sisters, but are we going to be scorched by the sun when Jesus gets to completely shape how we understand and live out marriage and sexuality? We love the idea of Jesus telling our enemies to love us, but will we faithfully follow him when that means getting slapped on both sides of the face? or joyfully serving the people that we hate? Now listen, I'm saying this genuinely. I'm not trying to pick on um, you know, folks who are going through like a, a season of, of faith deconstruction. The book of Jude tells us that we have to have mercy on those who doubt. And I think probably at some point most people will go through a season like that to some degree of deconstruction and hopefully reconstruction. I know I have. But I will say that, you know, I feel like this kind of response is something I see from a lot of people in that season of life. I'm not just picking on, you know, one kind of deconstructor either. Our friends to our left, our friends to our right may follow Jesus with joy initially. Then they deconstruct that faith into something that looks like the world around them. They deconstruct it when Lordship of Jesus interferes with their modern American morality. One of my favorite pastors, Derwin Gray, uh, he tweeted this a while back. He said, people will leave their church over politics before they will leave politics for a church. I think at the root of our lack of roots is this inherent desire to do discipleship on our terms. But you see, that's not how discipleship works. The students don't get to set the agenda. The teacher does. I walk into my sixth grade class every day. Mr. Ferguson, can we just watch The Chosen? Can we do something fun? I've, I've spent all week putting together this lesson plan. I'm going to teach you about you know, Jesus. I'm going to teach you about you know, the ascension, this important doctrine that we like never talk about that often. No, we're not going to watch The Chosen today. They say, can we do something fun? I say, yeah, we'll do something fun. Grab your notes. The students don't get to set the agenda. The teacher does. We obey Jesus' commands. We follow Jesus' example. We do what Jesus does. We love who Jesus loves. We give and we pray and we serve like Jesus gives and prays and serves. We follow Jesus on his terms, regardless of what it's going to cost us. What about this second disciple, though, in our passage? Let's look back at verse 21 together. Another of the disciples said to him, this is someone from the crowd, probably not one of the 12. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. This interaction, it seems jarring to us because of Jesus' response. He says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. We read that and many of us are probably thinking like, dang, Jesus, what happened to blessed are the merciful? What happened to blessed are those who mourn? But this is where we have to dive into Jesus' ancient Jewish culture for a second. We read this exchange, and probably the image that comes to mind is a guy whose father is on his deathbed, 
He doesn't have a lot of time left. There's probably going to be a funeral in the next week or so. But think about this important detail. The guy is here by the sea with Jesus already. From probably most of us in this room, if our dad's sick in the hospital at home on hospice care and the doctors think that you know, he could pass any day now, like we're there with him. We're not spending the day on the seashore listening to some up-and-coming preacher. So what's going on? What's most likely is that this guy's dad is probably already dead. It was the ancient Jewish practice to have uh, two funerals and two burials for a deceased relative. I know that sounds strange because of what it implies, and you're right. When the person would first pass away, they would wrap up the body in these linens packed with perfume and oil and put them into a tomb that was carved out of like a, a rock face. Think about the stories of Lazarus or Jesus' own death and burial. For us, that's where the services usually stop. Once we bury someone in the ground or we cremate them, um, that's kind of it in terms of ceremonial services. But in Jesus' day, stay with me for a second because this is going to be a little gross, but after a year or so had passed, they would go back to that tomb, they would open it up, and by now, all the, the flesh would have decomposed and rotted off the bones. They would take those bones, they'd put them in a special box, and bury those bones in another family plot. Too much more time on this, uh, but if you want to see how it kind of is played out in Scripture, bookmark Genesis 49 and 50. You can see, you know, Jacob and Joseph's death and burials. They talk about that kind of stuff in those chapters. But anyway, let's get back into our passage this morning. This guy tells Jesus, Lord, let me go bury my father. And what he means is, Jesus, I'm going to need like a year or so before I can follow you. You see, my dad passed away a while back, and eventually, you know, I got to take care of his bones. This disciple calls Jesus Lord. He has an idea of the importance of following Jesus, but he's not going to pull the trigger on actually following yet. And let's give him the benefit of the doubt. We can give him the benefit of the doubt here. Assume his heart is genuine. There were teachings floating around in Jesus' day that said, especially if you were the firstborn son, reburying your father's bones was really, really important, like part of obeying the fifth command to honor your father and mother, level importance. Just what some, that's what other teachers said around Jesus' time. But Jesus wants this guy to reprioritize his life. He says, let the dead bury their own dead. Bobby was texting me this week. He said that's like the perfect line for like a metal song. It's true. Let the dead bury their own dead. Uh, a lot of commentators think that uh, this is kind of a play on words that Jesus is making where he's saying, you know, let those who are spiritually dead take care of their physically dead. Jesus is speaking to this guy's insufficient faith again. His distracted, anxiety-ridden reluctance. His distracted, anxiety-ridden reluctance. So let's go back to the parable of the sower again. See another place where the seed of the gospel is planted 
and how it responds to the soil of the human heart. Jesus says, other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Again, Jesus comes back to explain the the metaphor. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So if the scribe illustrates what happens when the seed lands in shallow soil, this disciple illustrates what happens when the seed lands in thorny ground. The man hears the word, he understands it even, he calls Jesus Lord, yet the cares of this world keep him from following, from being faithful, from being fruitful. He's that Swifty who's actually counted the cost everything that it's going to take to make it to that concert and just says, I'm, just, I just, I'm not willing to make that sacrifice right now. Cars Church, uh, I don't want to step on anyone's toes here this morning. Actually, that's a typo. Uh, this text is going to step on our toes really quickly. Not just your toes, our toes. Because I catch myself saying stuff like this all the time. You've probably heard me say it to you. Man, I can just make it to this day on the calendar, I can get everything back in order. I can get back on track. If I can just get through for Columbia, I'll be ready. If I can just make it through May 7th, the next sermon, the grad recognition, the MC leader training, the restore group, I say it to you, I say it to Jesus, man, once we get to summer break, like, I'll be able to focus way more. Once the baby gets here, my life's going to slow down a lot, right? I'm kidding. I get the feeling that most of us here are more like the disciple than the scribe. Jesus, now's not really a great time for me. I see, I know you're getting in that boat. I'd really love to come with you. I think you could sail back around, you know, when COVID is over, when my baby sleeps through the night, when my health issues are resolved, when my job search is over, when my back stops hurting, when my parents or my in-laws stop causing me so many problems, when finals week is over, when I get a raise and I don't have to work so many nights and weekends. One of my uh, really favorite authors is a guy named Eugene Peterson. He's a pastor uh, who mostly wrote to other pastors. In one of his books, he, you know, remembers about how at so many pastor's conferences, you'll have at least one session or something, you know, where the speaker and the audience, you know, they bemoan and they commiserate over the busyness and the unique difficulties of pastoral life. And then Peterson tells his readers, I'm paraphrasing here, he says, shut up already. Everyone's life is busy. We don't do any good standing up here telling, uh, telling y'all how busy we are. You guys are busy. As I stand up here, do I feel busy? Yeah. But I look out in the auditorium here, I see healthcare professionals. Some of you guys probably were in the room when someone died this week. I look into the auditorium, I see teachers who had to sit down with parents to discuss why their child is falling so far behind and why they get sent to the office every week. I see students who are getting ready for graduation, 
They're taking the hardest tests they've ever taken, writing the longest papers they've ever written. I see parents, parents of newborns, parents of teenagers, who are just longing for the day where they can get a full night's sleep or not have to have that emotional argument about the phone or the car or the outfit again. And so many more, so many more. All of our lives are busy and hard. And we're busy with good things, family, vocation, school, and so much more. Here's the crux of this part of our passage. Jesus sees your hard and busy life. He sees it. And he still says, follow me. Let those things take care of themselves. And this sounds wild to us. That sounds crazy to us, right? And there's a way we can read this and apply it that's actually subverting what Jesus is calling us to. Jesus is not saying, hey, y'all, make sure you add me to your to-do list, okay? In fact, I've got lots of other stuff that you can put on there. Mm -mm. This text, it doesn't explicitly tell this to us, uh, but I think we can safely make this assumption. Jesus cares about this disciple's family who's still reeling from the loss of their father. For crying out loud, the last story we read last week was Jesus healing Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus cares about his disciples' families and their needs. Cars Church, hear this. Jesus sees your hard and busy life, and he cares deeply about your hard and busy life. He sees it, and he cares about it. He's getting into that boat, and he sees you on the shore, swamped with spreadsheets, corralling your kids, dealing with the death of your loved ones. And he doesn't say, add me to your to-do list. He says, follow me. I realize I'm kind of stopping on a cliffhanger right here. But this gets us into the tension that the passage raises for us. Jesus looks at the scribes' shallow, short-sighted enthusiasm. He looks at the would-be disciples' distracted, anxiety-ridden reluctance, and he wants something different from both of them. Jesus was calling them, and Jesus is calling us to follow him with a sober-minded sense of urgency. He wants us to calculate the cost of following him and then actually still follow him. He wants us to calculate the cost of following him, then still go through with following him. What does this mean for our busy lives without having it become just uh, adding Jesus to our to-do list? Because following Jesus doesn't mean abandoning the responsibilities that he's given to us, our families, our vocations, our educations. Later in the New Testament, you know, we see Paul teach the churches, hey, if you don't take care of your family, like, you're worse than someone who doesn't know Jesus at all. They say, you should work with your hands so that you have something to share with your neighbor. But it doesn't mean putting those, it doesn't mean abandoning those responsibilities, but it means not putting off following Jesus in all of those areas or trying to outlast our responsibilities. I'm sure there have been a million, give or take, sermons preached that have went something like this. If you wait until you're clean enough morally to come to Jesus, 
you will never be able to come to Jesus. Yeah, amen. Can I put a little bit of a spin on it this morning? If you're waiting till there's nothing else that you're busy with to follow Jesus fully, then you will never fully follow Jesus. We can certainly be busy because we idolize the things that we're busy with in a spiritually sinful way. But we can also be busy because we care about the things that we're busy with. And that's a distinction that each of us will have to evaluate in our own hearts. But like, you wouldn't want a pastor or a doctor or a teacher or a loan officer or a bartender who didn't care about what they were doing. We're busy with things because we care about them. Hopefully in the healthy way, sometimes in the idolatrous way. It's not inherently wrong to be busy. It can be. It's not inherently Caring about the places Jesus has put us in is also important. So beyond what it means, then what does it look like? Pastor Kevin and I, we went to Omaha last week for an X-29 conference. We may or may not have been listening to some Taylor Swift as we drove. But, it, you know, it really got my juices flowing again, got me encouraged in a way that was really good. Uh, we talked theological education and leadership development in the local church. We talked about small group ministry and culturally relevant evangelism. We talked about planting churches across the country and sending missionaries around the globe. So here are your application questions for this morning. There are some of you this morning, like the scribe, with enthusiastic energy but shallow roots. Here's your question. How can you foster growth and development of your spiritual roots? We probably all need to ask ourselves this question anyway, even if we're not the scribe in this passage. How can you foster the growth and development of your spiritual roots? You got big dreams for gospel ministry? I love it. Fantastic. But are you following Jesus in the foundational things, like baptism and church membership? Are you plugged in to an MC and a DNA group, living in gospel community, living on mission in your day-to-day -day life, growing in your knowledge of, of his word? Are you serving alongside your brothers and sisters on a regular basis? And then there are some of you here this morning like the reluctant disciple. What aspect, here's your question, what aspect of following Jesus uh, that you know he's been calling you to have you been putting off because you think you're too busy? What aspect of following Jesus that you know he's calling you to have you been putting off because you're too busy? Maybe God's been calling you to serve your church by stepping up and leading an MC, giving someone else a break. Maybe you've known for a while now that you've got a skill or a spiritual gift that you just don't know what to do with, but you know you should maybe talk to the elders about something like lead school or the CARS internship. I don't know this for sure, but I'm assuming in a room like this, there's probably at least one other person like college-aged me who knows that they've been called to vocational pastoral ministry or church planting or global missions, and you just don't want to acknowledge it yet. Maybe you're neither of the people in the story. 
Maybe you're just here investigating this whole Jesus thing in general. That's okay too. The call to you, it's simple but not necessarily easy. Jesus wants you to follow him. He wants you to turn from your sin. Those things that you've made yourself busy with that distract you from him, that lead to broken relationship with God and with the people around you in your life. Whoever you are this morning, though, Jesus wants you to calculate the cost of following him and then still follow him with a sober-minded sense of urgency. How can he ask me of that, though? Does he not know? Does he not appreciate my enthusiastic heart? Does he not know how busy I am? Church, again, we do discipleship on the terms King Jesus has laid out for us. But here's what's so encouraging. These are not the terms that Jesus invents and then throws out to us. They're the terms that he will lead us an example by, that he has led us an example by. In letters to his church plants, Paul writes these words, He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And later, he says this to another church, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the only one who can ask us to give everything to follow him because he's the only one who gave everything, truly everything, to make a place for us and his family. He's the God of the universe, the king of all creation lacking in nothing, needing no one other than himself. He was rich, made himself poor so that we could share in his wealth. He was God and emptied himself. It's like a cup tipping over and being poured out. There's nothing left in it. Became a servant. Like you and me, a human and died on a cross. The worst, most shameful, embarrassing death you could possibly die. But church, that is where I want to leave us this morning. In this moment, on the beach, before Jesus, uh, Jesus before the crowds, expecting a sober-minded sense of urgency in following him. Will you follow him fully in that way because of what he's done for you already? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We pray that your spirit would continue to just sink it deeper and deeper into our souls. We pray that the words of your son Jesus, they would continue to shape us, to challenge us, to spark us with the faith we need to follow you, to follow you fully. God, would we be disciples with deep roots and dedicated hearts to you? Help us to grow as your people that we can see your will done in our city. Lord, as we continue to worship 
around your table, would you grant us just a deeper experience of unity, both with you and with each other? We praise you, and we thank you for Jesus, for his sacrifice for us, and the life that he shares with us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.